welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm your host, Sam Stern. Thank you so much for all of you who have listened to Voices of Esalen thus far and subscribed to it. Uh, We're new, so you are the early listeners. Please tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell everyone you know about us. And if you feel motivated, you could even leave a review on iTunes. It doesn't have to be a five-star review. It could be a five-star review, but it doesn't have to be. You know, anything honest helps. Just uh, getting the word out there. That's how you can support Voices of Esalen uh, at this moment. So thank you so much for your support. If you like what you're hearing, we like doing it for you. So our guest today is Michaela Bohm, a wonderful, articulate, very provocative teacher. She was at Esalen in the fall doing a course called The Wild Woman's Way. Um, in our discussion, we really dug into her teaching, and in particular, polarity and sexual chemistry, especially as that pertains to long-term relationships. Michaela let me know why polarity uh, is important and how to preserve it. So there's a lot to think about from her teaching, a lot to learn. Maybe you agree with it, maybe you disagree. She was so forthcoming and really admire her candor and her free thought. Uh, so with no further ado, Here's my conversation with Michaela Bohm. Hi, Michaela. How are you today? I am good. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent. Thank you so much for joining us on Voices of Esalen. I thought I would I would start the interview by asking you uh, just a bit about your teaching. When you were here uh, in the fall, I think the name of your workshop was The Wild Woman's Way. And I wanted to ask you about uh, about that and, and what you taught there. Yeah. Well, I actually taught two in a row. I taught The Wild Woman's Way, which is a body of work I've developed, and I can talk about that in a second. And I also taught The Yoga of Deep Intimacy, which is the application of that kind of work for both men and women on how to create intimacy and uh uh, you know, deal with uh, the uh, requirements of keeping polarity or sexual chemistry alive, and and that that body of work. So there's, I I do both of them each year at Essendon. Okay, let's start with the Wild Woman's Way. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's a it's a it's a big topic simply because um, I've had a. A teacher since I was very young, and uh, that my first teacher was a woman, and I studied with her for about uh, 11 or 12 years, you know, very intensively. The last year I went back and forth between the States and Europe, so it wasn't quite as full on anymore. But uh, my background is in a kind of a tantric, um, Kashmiri tantric yoga tradition, and then of course I traveled and taught with David Data for 13 years. So and I developed um, a lot of the uh, exercises that are used in uh, the workshops, you know, during that time, uh, in the the women's uh, uh, part of the workshops. And that uh, premise or the the background of the wild woman's way is uh, a combination of of both uh, the time I spent with my first teacher and the time I spent uh, on the road and teaching um, in the U.S. with David and as well by myself in the last eight years, I've been uh, you know, traveling extensively with this particular uh, program. 
uh, my inspiration essentially came from my uh, background in Jungian psychology where the wild woman, you know, is an archetype. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. one of my, uh, of my heroes ever since I was 15 or 16 was uh, Clarissa Pinkola Estes, who, uh, of course, wrote uh, Women Who Run With The Wolves, which is all about the wild woman archetype. And so in the course of uh, my own studies and my own explorations and, you know, my background in, in Jungian psychology, I um, wanted to create something that uh, dealt with the actual physical embodiment of that particular archetype and the exploration uh, around that because a lot of us um, have lost that part of us. and. You know, how wild woman is to be understood is not wild and crazy and, um, uh, you know, all fangs and claws, even though that could be part of it, but it's um, connected to nature, our wildish nature, how there is a Nicola is to say. So it's kind of a rewilding of one's uh, essential uh, self, one's essential nature, which looks different in each human. Um, This is particularly for women solely because um, women's bodies have different requirements around, uh, you know, uh, human sexuality and women's sexuality and pleasure and uh, birthing and, you know, all of those kind of things. So rewilding looks a bit different with men. I teach uh, men's workshops around that uh, topic as well, but the wild woman's way is specifically for women's bodies, women's psyches, and... um, it, it enables each woman through a process of movement and dance and art. We do these beautiful art projects, and of course, Esalen's art barn uh, always you know, features a prominent role in, in the five days because it's amazing to be able to go there and, as a group of women, create uh, you know, art that represents their individual inquiries and their individual expressions. It's a very beautiful um, five-day project to do at SLN because we can use we use the bath one evening um, where we do uh, you know singing and poetry and and bath treatments as a group. We use the art barn. Uh, we use the property. So it's a very beautiful place to do this workshop. So I'm I'm curious. By the end of the workshop, how does one of uh, the women who's participated uh, in your class know that she has been rewilded? Uh, it's pretty apparent because the rewilding is essentially a coming back to who you really are, and 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 her particular access to that. So some of the symptoms, so to speak, that that people experience is a much stronger connection to the body a much stronger connection to the instinctive, uh, intuitive aspects of oneself, the feeling aspect of oneself, um, connection to other women, connection to nature, connection to uh, individual self-expression. Uh, and it looks different in different w- women. You know, some women sing, some women dance, some women um, paint, some women just become very... Uh, uh, connected to you know other women in the group, but a sure sign is always the connection to the body, a certain relaxation and openness, um, an intuitive uh, feeling 
of what's happening with other people and with oneself and, and the surroundings. So those mm-hmm. are the symptoms, so to speak. Ah, okay. And then you transition into teaching with men and women together in the, the mm-hmm. other part of your program. Um, yeah. Did you find a difference? Well, like... you know, it's it's also very different because during a five day, particularly when we speak about Esalen, right? During a five day, it's a very different environment than during a weekend. Um, yeah. A lot of people who come for a five day, they come specifically to immerse, and they come wanting to be in that particular program. And because it's only women. Um, we build a, we can, and we can build a very strong community and a very strong feeling of um, a group and connectedness. And it's very beautiful to see how then women sit in the dining area together and they do things together. And of course, when you then bring um, men in and people come as couples, that's very different because, of course, one of the things about the weekend workshop is that it deals with uh, the dynamics of sexual relationships, sexual attraction, intimacy, how to create strong uh, sexual polarity. So people come specifically with their mate, and that makes them uh, want to be with their mate and not so much in larger groups or communities. And then people who come as single participants might have partners at home, so they're not as prone to hang out as much. And then, of course, some people come as singles and they connect with other people. But it's a very different feeling during a weekend than it is during a women's workshop um, for for the reasons I just mentioned and also because um, the topic's very different. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned couples. And I wanted to ask, do you, do you see a common denominator for couples who have a long-lasting sexual attraction? Yes, they usually don't spend much time together. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that sounds funny, but that's actually very true. Uh, The people I know both, now mind you, of course, right, I've been a a counselor for over 20 years and I've taught workshops for a good 15 and, you know, before that I taught other things. So I, of course, am in the position to see people who have issues and it's the you don't you know you don't go to the doctor unless you're sick. So often I get to see people who have trouble in their relationships, but um, not always because I also work just with sexual things and and you know people who want to increase uh, the depth of their relationship. But there's nothing really wrong. But mostly I would say what makes people not stay together is the loss of polarity uh, in yeah. the relational sexual domain and then of course things like um, you know financial issues and uh, issues of uh, addiction and and uh, other related things are, you know the main reasons people don't stay together you mentioned polarity I was, I'm wondering if uh, it's obvious or we need to define it and I, I also wanted to pose to you what are some ways that you lose polarity besides spending a great deal of time together yeah, well, I think, you know, to, to define polarity, um, there has been a lot of um, pop culture reference to the terms masculine and feminine in the last, you know, 10 years or so, in particular in the last five. So um, it's very important to understand that masculine and feminine are not uh, the same as men and women, right? Each human being has both in them, and each human being has uh, aspects of them that are more 
um, you know, when we say masculine, what we're talking about is directed, focused, purposed, uh, organized in a time-space grid, having an overview of where it's going, the part of us that observes, the part of us that witnesses, uh, the part of us that, um, you know, can kind of keep a head above the fray while it's happening and has a linear forward movement. That's part of, in all of us, we call the masculine. The part in all of us that's wildly creative, uh, nonlinear, somewhat chaotic at times, um, immersed in life and, uh, you know, flowing with life, that's the feminine. And so in each human, there is both, because otherwise we wouldn't function. But each human has kind of a natural place which they, um, uh, you know, thrive the most or are the happiest in. And that place could be called uh, one's sexual essence is what David Data calls it. So one's sexual essence, by the way, he pioneered this kind of work, you know, way, way back when. And it's, of course, since then been taken by many people and interpreted in many different ways. But in, in, its, in, in its essential way, uh, polarity is described um, as the attraction between two poles and in relationships, the two poles would be one person animating their masculine essence and one person animating their feminine essence. Now, who is who doesn't really matter, but most people have a preference, so they rest naturally in their masculine, or they rest naturally in their feminine, so they prefer animating and enjoying life through the body to uh, finding the depth of consciousness uh, in stillness or the other way around. Right? So you could say whoever um, amplifies the feminine essence um, immerses fully in life with the body, um, through the environment, through their actions, and whoever animates the masculine um, is the conscious witness to life happening. Right? And so what that means sexually, though, and what the only thing that's important about that sexually, when we talk about polarity, is that one partner takes on the characteristics, the bodily characteristics of one, it's one part of that, and the other one takes on the characteristics of the other pole. And then those two poles um, create an arc of attraction or an arc of polarity, like a north and a south, a minus and a plus. Okay. Then you have a sexual chemistry. Now, the problem is that most people, when they spend time together, um, and I've you know, spoken about this extensively and so have other people, so I'm just going to give you a very, uh, very quick summary. But relationship is built on sameness. Polarity is built on opposite mm. aspects. So when people get into relationship they start out by not knowing each other and it's very exciting and they're very different. And then as they enter a relationship, um, most people start moving in together, start spending time together, start having friends in common and so on and so on. So they create more and more sameness, which is very beautiful for the sake of furthering the, the intimacy and the connection in the relationship. But it's... Um, counteractive to the art of polarity, which is built on people being very separate from each other. So this brings us back to 
how do couples who have good relationships survive in the in, in the sexual polarity? Well, they know that when you spend too much time together, it's like two magnets rubbing each other off. You lose the the different aspects, and so most people who have intact, interesting uh, sexual spark have uh, separate interests, separate um, you know friends, spend time apart. Uh, do things that make them interesting to their intimate partner and they don't spend every moment, you know, sitting together on the sofa watching TV, which is the ultimate buzz killer for sexual attraction. (laughs) Are there uh, any other ways that um, we are in danger of losing polarity with our partner besides spending too much time together? Is there something that 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 is somehow different than this, which is also dangerous to the polarity? I'd say, you know, processing, uh, spending too much time talking about things that are better talked about with therapists or friends. That's a big one. You know, that happens a lot where people treat each other as their best friends, which is very lovely, but it certainly destroys sexual polarity. The kind of rule of thumb is always that when um, when you could speak with a girlfriend or a male friend about it, you uh, you know, when it's an issue, a problem, or something you need to process, you better process with the therapist or with a friend and not with your partner. Mm-hmm. Okay. You've uh, discussed other ways to recreate polarity and, and uh, you know, emphasize a, a very decent, you know, or better than decent sexual attraction for couples who want to stay together. Hmm. Well, a lot of the things I teach center around creating that because um, essentially sexual polarity follows the same rules as physics, right? It, uh, you know, one polarizes the other. So if somebody goes very strongly with their body into the domain of the masculine, the, up, the other partner's body will automatically soften into the feminine. The nice thing about these things is that they're instant. Right? Now, the emotional, uh, psychological, aspects, you know, resentment or or past patterns, that's hard to fix, but the actual um, chemistry, the actual polarity, that's almost instantaneous when you know what you do. So you can learn with your body to animate, let's say, stillness and movement or depth and energy or, um, you know, pleasure in the body and uh, this kind of meditative stillness that meets it. So those things can be learned and it doesn't take very long to learn them. But so for anybody listening who isn't in the middle of a workshop right now, uh, one of the ways to look at it is simply um, to work with one's body in a way that um, creates a certain kind of um, somatic expression of whatever their essence is. And that in itself makes a huge difference. One thing that comes up from listening to you uh, is, you know, Esalen is located near the Bay Area, and I would say that the the Bay is probably one of the world's leading centers where polyamory is, yes. is, is popular, right? So I'm, yeah. I'm not a big fan of it because I think it gets things too complicated and it, it creates uh, issues of jealousy. Um, but I'm curious how 
your school of thought kind of plays in with the, the school of thought around polyamory because it seems they have similar goals at least. Um, hmm. <laughs> I, I'm not so sure if we could say similar goals because, um, I mean, it's a big issue and, and recently uh, a lot of uh, interviews and lots of talks have kind of focused on it and I've certainly... Uh, you know, reversed my position on a few things in the last, I would say, five five years or so, simply because, uh, you know, conventional relationship as it was done for many, many years uh, has really never worked that well for reasons we can go into, you know, one of which is it's a fairy tale to believe that two humans who live you know, 50, 60, 80, 90 years nowadays will stay together uh, during that whole period. Now, my parents are going to be married for 50 years this year, and my grandparents were married for 65 or so. So it's definitely doable, and people do it, but comes with a very uh, specific price if you want to have that kind of relationship. Most people nowadays, and particularly in the context of um, you know, women's liberation and and men having a very different role in society nowadays than from even 10 years ago. Uh, the the idea that one partner will fulfill it all with the complex lives we have these days is not that like it's not that likely. Mm-hmm. Right? So. Um, I'm not a big fan of polyamory either for the exact same reasons you described, which is that for the for the right to have sex with whoever you want to have sex with, you pay the price of constant processing, constant engagement, constant talking, and it becomes kind of a lifestyle uh, just through that. Now, mind you, there are some people who handle things very differently, but um, not everybody has the time it takes to do as much uh, you know, conscious processing as it takes to keep the show on the road. Also, of course, it enables you to um, spread your, uh, you know, your attention, your consciousness wide instead of deep because you can always uh, just go somewhere else when it becomes a bit dicey or a bit, you know, um, too close to the bone. But once again, these are generalizations. There's people who do... Um, really well with multiple relationships in, in, in different situations. I would say that um, when you look at relationship as a means and sex, you know, like relationships and sex as a means to growth, then you could explore that growth in a variety of situations. Uh, in a one-on-one committed relationship, uh, if you commit to that particular uh, trajectory of growth, there isn't a way out. You don't get a relief. And that can be very useful if you have the guts and the, uh, you know, the kind of propensity to want to look at your patterns of relating that, you know, handed down to you from your parents and and all of that. Um, Then uh, a one-on-one relationship is a really, really great way to go. And Anyone who has been married for a long time, I've been married now for over 10 years, so I've known my husband for, I think, close to 15. 
I can tell you that that's a whole other, uh, you know, kettle of fish or whatever you want to call it. That that takes a whole other uh, inquiry to maintain long-term relationship honestly. And it's not all roses. And anyone who's been married for a while knows there's whole years where you definitely question that that decision. And then it's amazing again. And then it gets really bizarre. And then, you know, so it's... <laughs> It's a it's a it's a great tool for a certain kind of an inquiry. Now there's other tools for for inquiry, and one of them is to have different partners for different aspects of your life. Not all of them sexual, um, but to perhaps um, not put so much responsibility on one partner to fulfill you in all domains. Right? And there's also schools of thought that says. You need to be perfectly happy with yourself before you even enter into any relationship, but most people don't. If they wait that long, they won't ever have relationships. So, you know, um, I don't think there's one answer. I do think, though, that the people who I have met, um, mostly who are polyamorous, um, you know, often bypass certain aspects for the sake of, addressing others, but we all do that, so what do I know? Uh, my my personal preference is certainly to keep it a little bit more simple than that. Yeah, right. I'm curious, what what would you say is the average age of the um of your students who come to the to the couples workshops? You know, it's really um I would say it runs the whole gamut, uh, because um I you know, I personally um uh, have no age requirements other than legal age. And my co-teacher, the man I teach with these days, is um, much younger than I am. So uh, between, you know, the people that he attracts and the people that um, I attract and the people who are just naturally in the age where they want to work on relationships, I'd say early 20s till late 70s. But oh with a core group of probably 30 to 50 or 55. If you had a view on pornography or sexual mm-hmm. media, I don't, I don't know whether to call it pornography or sexual media or if there's a difference, but the stuff that is available out there, can you envision this stuff helping? Or, and if not, can you envision the kind of sexual media that, that plays into empowered roles for the sex? Mm-hmm. Well, there is certainly a way to use pornography in a very beneficial way. Um, and I have a few clients with whom I've specifically work, worked on that private client. But, of course, the thing to be said, generally speaking, and I see this a lot with um, uh, you know, younger participants, both in the men's and the women's groups, uh, report you know, a very strong desensitization. And as you probably know, it's a huge problem in young, young male uh, adults. You know, the, the need for um, sexual stimulants, uh, you know, medications at times because there's such a strong desensitization. And, and it's so available from such an um, early age that it does influence the nervous system in a way that can't be described as entirely beneficial, to say it very lightly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. also a view of how people should look and act and behave sexually uh, that's, you know, very incorrect, as, as we know. But 
you know, and also when you look at sexual conduct in teenagers, things that when I grew up were considered incredibly out there or taboo or weird are completely mainstream based on sexual media. Well, and sexual acts that were considered somewhat out there are performed happily by 16, 17, 18-year-olds and younger at times. So that said, of course, you know, there's a, there's a huge downfall to pornography that, that um, can't be denied. However, um, it, you know, if put in the right context, one of the ways that pornography can be kind of interesting uh, to look at is that, of course, um, evolutionarily speaking, just from a biological evolutionary psychology standpoint, uh, we as men and women, regardless of you know what what uh, uh, feminism or, or, or men's liberation or women's liberation say, as human beings, biologically speaking, we're built differently. We have different sexual organs, and we have different. Um, uh, roles as far as the survival of the species. And so in a man, um, what facilitates survival of the species is the willingness and ability to inseminate and impregnate as many young, fertile women as humanly possible. And so uh, that's what the body wants to do. And it doesn't matter if you evolve uh, and you can evolve, you know, both uh, psychologically and spiritually, but your body as a male body is built to ejaculate quickly as often and as much and with as many different women as humanly possible. And I don't know if you know this, one of the uh, interesting things about all male mammals is that the more stress they are under, um, the more they want to ejaculate. And the reason for that, of course, is that you want to procreate before you die. So in a, in a tribal situation, in the cave days, if there was a war coming or a neighboring tribe or a famine, the best you could possibly do is make sure that you deposited some genetic code somewhere that it could be carried forth. So that's why there's so much rape and, and sexual violence and, you know, in war, because that kind of stress of we are going to die in a male mammal and certainly in a male human produces the wantingness to ejaculate. That's pretty fascinating perspective. It, I mean, it, you could, it, with that, you could really envision, amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it's yeah. crazy. I mean, you could envision the whole uh, excess of really bad porn that's out there as this kind of like death cry in the late stage of capitalism as our society collapses. That kind of makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you could you could look at it like that. There's other reasons too, which I'll mention in a second, because it's it, this is a super fascinating topic, right? So so that's what men are built for. So that's why men, in their very nature, regardless of their social conditioning and you know uh, spiritual conditioning, the body wants to have to have a variety of young fertile women, and the. And, of course, the variety is not being taken into account when you get married to one woman. So in women, something else, I'll come back to this in a second, in women, something else happens entirely. A woman's body's main responsibility in the realm of survival of the species is to maintain 
enough body weight to ovulate, maintain a pregnancy, and breastfeed. And so women in stressful-slash-war-slash-death situations eat carbs, ideally. <laughs> right? Because in the wilderness, the hardest thing to come by were carbs. You know, there was no 7-Eleven corner stores or anything of that nature, so you needed to get berries or honey or whatever you could get that was starchy or carb-rich, um, you know, to maintain ovulation, to maintain your pregnancy, to maintain um, the ability to breastfeed. Uh, finding many young fertile men was fairly low on the priority because you only needed to be impregnated once every nine months. Then you needed a man who could actually provide food and sustenance and shelter and safety for you and the, and the offspring. So while men are highly visual looking for nice ass, women look for money, power, um, sustenance. And that hasn't changed as much as we'd like for it to have changed. And it has because we can make our own living nowadays and all of that. But, but the body still goes you know, this is what I need for me and my offspring to survive. So, so that all said, um, and you can also once again see, you know, link between uh, women and hagen and things like that, right? <laughs> the more, the more stress, the more eating. Now, nowadays women are so disciplined around, or many women, not all women, but many women are super disciplined around eating. So that impulse has gone into shopping. You know, or uh, <laughs> food, or makeup, or clothing, and stuff like that. But a man's relationship to sex is like a woman's relationship to her clothes, or her makeup, or her shoes. Mm. Uh, all about the variety. So, when um, when a man is in a monogamous relationship, he still has the same impulse to look at women and uh, desire them. You know, at least. Um, for a second as he walks by. And of course, when you are in a monogamous relationship, that becomes a bit like you're having pizza every night, which is great for the first week or two, but after that, uh, there's a biological need for variety. What I think is interesting about you and what you're saying is that you're you're hardly painting an idyllic uh, picture of monogamy, and yet you've been married for 10 years and been with the same partner for 15. Yeah. But so I have, I, um, I, I have supplementation, so to speak, um, as and so does my husband. Not sexual supplementation necessarily, but um, I have um, a variety of very good uh, male support in other domains where I'm not expecting for my husband to do it all and be it all. And the mm. same thing for my husband. My husband that teaches traditional Thai massage and yoga therapy. So um, to say it very bluntly, he spent a great deal of time uh, touching and massaging different women's bodies. Mm-hmm. Right? So he is certainly not deprived of different energies. Now, you don't have to take it sexual. It's, you know, I mean, we are, we are all fairly civilized human beings nowadays. You don't have to actually, you know, hump everything that moves. You have control over it. But your base need for variety as a man never, never subsides unless, you know, uh, your testosterone goes to zero. And um, 
your base need as a woman for direction and support and um, uh, you know power supplied uh, by an external source in some way or another never subsides. And so um, porn, you know, uh, is one way that men could potentially, if they know how to use it healthily, supplement without having to cheat or without having to do weird stuff. And um, other sexual media, which doesn't really exist quite yet, the closest we've come to something being mainstream sexual media for women has probably been uh, romance novels and Fifty Shades of Grey, which is like fast food. But but it's it's a it's a movement in that direction. Yes, no, very well yeah. said. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I I definitely you know I definitely uh, for many other reasons prefer. Um, being with one man in, in the situation that I am, but I by no means have a conventional marriage. That's, uh, I don't live with my husband for most of the year. <laughs> he has a separate uh, place on the same property, and we both travel extensively. So if we see each other a week, a month, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. Each couple has to decide what works for them. What works for me and my husband would not work for most people. Mm-hmm. I think. So where do you think is the best place to teach about sexuality? I was, I was going to ask you, do, you, do you find Esalen to be, in its essence, a sexual place or non-sexual or medium? Mm-hmm. I think I would not categorize Esalen as a sexual place in its design or purpose, but it's an open place and it's a very... Um, um, you know, both rich in history and and progressive place. So, uh, you know, when when I I grew up in Austria, um, so far away from Esalen, but you know, I would I would I was very much into Alan Watts and um, uh, you know Suzuki Roshi and all kinds of different things that would happen on the you know as well on the west coast of the U.S. And uh, of course, I was born you know, after after those things took place. But well, I was very young when those things took place. But I look at Esalen as both the cradle of the kind of movement that we all, particularly here on the on the West Coast, are now benefiting. And at the same time, I think Esalen has never stopped um, opening up to, you know, different views and different experimentations. And there's always an openness for new things and, the next development. So it's a great place to teach simply because the environment is one that allows for great self-expression of the participants, but it also has enough of a structure so people can feel held and safe. And then, of course, just the beauty um, and the lushness of the environment, you know, just walking across the gardens there with all the uh, you know the marigolds and looking out on the ocean and the kind of food that's provided and the um, the baths make it a very sensual place. I wouldn't say sexual per se. You could take it sexual then, but it's an incredibly sensual, um, beautiful, and beauty filled you know uh, place that enables a full bodied exploration of any kind. Mm, mm, yes. Well, I just have a couple more questions. 
I wanted to ask you, why do you teach? What, what is it about teaching that's, that's gratifying or, or essential for you? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, the reason I'm going, um, there's so much to be said. I, I would say that uh, my my uh, wantingness or willingness to teach is kind of um, the thing that gets me up in the morning. You know, I'm kind of built to um, uh, want to, uh, you know, give the things that I've learned and give the things that I have an expertise in. And so um, teaching and, and, uh, and transmitting the, the knowledge that I've been given and I've recently also become the lineage holder of the woman who taught me to begin with. But that kind of giving force uh, is kind of in my in my blood and bones in a certain way. And so that's that's kind of the primary motivation is that I don't know um, how I would exist if I couldn't give the things that were taught to me both by my teachers and by my parents as well and my heritage couldn't be given forth. And then the other part is that um, the areas of human um, sensuality, sexuality, women's, um, women's culture, women's movement, um, you know, the new emerging men's culture, all of those aspects of, of human development are not really taught in school and not taught in families. So That's true. You know, and and so I'm very passionate about that particular field because it's one of the few um, areas that you don't get taught in. I mean, most people get taught, you know, an instrument, math, um, how to balance the checkbook, you know, I mean, at least if they were, uh, you know, parented moderately well. You get taught things in school, but nobody teaches you about sex, about um, how to you know, have a, a, a marriage. We're supposed to pick that up from our parents who don't all have the best marriages. And so it's super important for me to make sure that these things are addressed and and uh, people get a chance to learn properly. Well, what's one mistake that you used to make while teaching that you don't make anymore? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say, you know, teaching is, is, if you're honest, teaching is a constant mistake in a certain way, simply because um, uh, every time, you know, when I look back, every time I teach, I realize that something I taught could have been taught different or uh, with more depth or in, in, from a different angle. Um, so, you know, it's an, it's an ongoing process to, to teach um, a, a living tradition to living human beings. So that said, though, I think one of the mistakes that um, I used to make that I certainly try to avoid these days is that you cannot protect from their patterns or their karma mm. um, as, much, as much as you want to as a teacher because, you know, or, uh, as a counselor as well. Because, of course, from the outside, it's fairly apparent what's going on. Um, and 
you can, of course, uh, with a bit of skill and um, knowledge and with the right kind of agreement, influence somebody's past substantially. And, um, you know, sometimes that's a very good thing, but sometimes uh, you find out later on that the learning had to happen exactly how it had to happen and that um, trying to spare people certain experiences just means they'll come back to them later on because uh, everyone has to make their own learning mistakes and, and learn through experience and that you can't spare anyone from that. No. Uh, is there anything that you find embarrassing uh, to talk about in your, in your workshops around the sexual arena? I mean, because it is a, a topic that can bring up embarrassment. Uh, no. There's <laughs> <laughs> nothing about living. How about, how about this? Is there, is there something that you find that men are embarrassed to speak about or, or embarrassed to a subject that's embarrassing to broach within your classes? Uh, yeah, I would definitely say the reason I'm saying no is, you know, I've, uh, I've traversed that whole area both personally and in, in, in my teaching for a long time. And, I, you know, I both have a, a fairly filthy mind and a filthy mouth. And I've also heard it all. I, I remember in the beginning of my counseling sessions, I'd go, you did what? <laughs> what? You know, but nowadays. <laughs> I, I've heard every configuration and and uh, you know position that you can possibly imagine, and um, I think it's very important to speak about these things very cleanly and clearly, uh, so that people lose their shame around it. I would definitely mm-hmm. say most people don't want to admit that they have sexual problems of yeah. any kind. With men, of course, there's always the issue of performance and erection and things like that. Um, and I think a lot of people are very um, hesitant and rightly so, particularly in workshops where there's, you know, you never know. I mean, nowadays, you also have to take into account that people might be recording stuff on their cell phones and, ah, you know, all kinds of things that make people be less forthcoming. But um, I think the sexual fantasies that people have um, or explorations that are considered um, you know, somewhat out of the ordinary is still the area where people, uh, you know, are, are somewhat hesitant. Now, you know, my workshops deal mostly with how do you create the strongest uh, attraction and the deepest intimacy. So, um, some, you know, people don't usually go into nitty-gritty sexual stuff. In my private sessions, when my teaching partner and I do private sessions, we sometimes deal with those things in depth, you know, because it's private and between that person and us or that person and their partner and us. Um, and in those contexts, often sexual performance is the thing that's, you know, the last uh, bastion of embarrassment. Yes, definitely. Well, fantastic. Thank you for a beautiful exploration uh, of your work, Michaela. I'm, I'm wondering if our listeners want to explore more about what you do, how can they, how can they find out more? Hmm. Well, I have a website. So it's um, M as in Mary, I-C-H-A-E-L-A, B as in boy, O-E-H-M as in Mary. So it's MichaelaBohm.com. And... Um, 
uh, on that website is absolutely everything I do this this year. I'm doing um, quite extensive teaching both on West and East Coast in Australia and in Europe. So there's lots and lots of different uh, programs, men's groups, women's groups. Uh, this year I'm teaching a couple of uh, very uh, in-depth uh, sexual yoga trainings, five-day trainings as well. I have long-term study groups, apprenticeships, uh, recordings on the website, you name it, um, it's it's there. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Michaela. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again for listening to Voices of Esalen. You can find us on iTunes or go to the Esalen website. That's E-S-A-L-E-N. Org. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, our Director of Programs, Geraldine Hess, Programs Manager, Shannon Hudson is our Webmaster, and Lori Putnam is our Director of Marketing. I'm your host, Sam Stern, wishing you deep happiness and strength on your path.